All right, if I get your attention, as you know, we're studying the book of James. So if you have your uh, Bible or electronic device, turn to James chapter 2. We're going to be going through verse 14 through 26, which is uh, one of the uh, amazing uh, passages in the Bible that people over the years, going all the way back to the very beginning of the church, have debated and discussed and even broken up over. Uh, but first we have a, uh, you know, people are, are notoriously naive about their moral ethical ability. I think that's one of the parts that makes James uh, controversial because people think that they, can, you know, that they can do enough works and be good enough and obey the law enough to where uh, that's all that matters. Uh, and so uh, they take the side that James is saying that you're saved by works is really not true. And uh, the moral ethical naivety is quite in view in today's movie clip when Roy thinks he, he claims to be compassionate and forgiving and patient with his fellow man. Let's see if that follows through. Okay, uh, in James 2, 14, as you know, we've, uh, I think we've got an um, outline of James. James is... Uh, concern with the actions of a person who claims to be faithful, who claims to be a believer in Christ. And so in uh, today's lesson, he's going to use the topic of works. Last week, if you remember, was partiality, and it was your use of the Word of God. The week before that, it was your reaction to temptations, and the week before that, it was your reaction to uh, t tests and trials, trouble. So he's going through all these different issues one at a time, and it's all about faith in action. What do we do? Be doers of the word, not just sayers. And so he goes through all these different issues, and today is about good works, all right? So uh, James may be the most controversial book because the New Testament um, says in all the writings of Paul that you're saved by grace through faith alone. And a lot of people point out that that may be a contradiction to what James is saying. Uh, and so when you think about uh, historically that issue, it goes all the way back to the churches at the 400 A.D. Council. They decided exactly which books would be in the New Testament. Uh, and they called that the canon or the rule or the authority. Uh, and it was determined by that council which books that they were, that the churches, different churches were using, were considered inspired. And so they had these big church councils with the leaders of all the churches all around the Mediterranean world, whether it was from uh, Rome or Greece or Asia Minor or Palestine or Northern Africa, they all came together to decide for the first time, which books could go in there. Uh, and they did determine, uh, there was some discussion about James, but they determined that James was inspired by God and was not contradictory to the rest of the Bible. Uh, and so it, it's been in the canon, it's been in uh, the Bible from the very beginning. The 27 books that are in the New Testament, James has been there from the very beginning. But in the Reformation... In the Reformation of, uh, the late, of the early 1600s, 
one of the main leaders of that was Martin Luther, I'm sure you're aware. And Martin Luther, he had a background of, of people of raising him saying you were saved by works. And the church in that day actually had theology that was works-oriented that you were saved by works. And so Martin Luther just instinctively within himself knew that that just couldn't be right. And he could never get used to that. He was actually a, a Roman Catholic priest. But he could never feel like that his works were enough. He could never feel like he was forgiven based on the things that he did. And he struggled with that. And finally he was actually teaching at a seminary, teaching the book of Romans. And in Romans 1 it said that the righteousness of God comes by faith alone. And it, it was like a, just a, a miracle. It was like a, being born again for this priest because it was a revelation that he hadn't grasped before, which is that the righteousness that's required by God comes from God. It's a gift of God. We say we're saved by grace. That's what the author's talking about. The righteousness that God requires, the forgiveness that God gives is all by his grace. It's a free gift, and that's the only way it can uh, happen. That's the means of salvation, and the only way it can become ours is through faith. We believe it, we commit ourselves to it, and God gives it to us, right? And so when Martin Luther read James, and uh, he, he sees the passage that says, you, you say, you have faith, I say, I have works, I show you my faith by my works. So he struggled with that. He thought that that might contradict with what Paul was writing in his passages. So I think we have a, a comparison of Ephesians 2 and... Um, Yeah, I would give, he said in 1543, he was talking about James, and he was trying to convince uh, the reformers to take James out of the New Testament. And he made the comment, he said, I would give my doctor's beret, you know, when they got their doctorate, they got that cool hat. <laughs> and he said, I would give my doctor's beret to anyone who could reconcile James and Paul. And so today, I'm going to earn that beret. The big boast, right? Uh, but that'll actually be up to you. Uh, if you think we can reconcile that, then we will have accomplished what he didn't think anybody could do. Uh, and so Paul's writing in Ephesians 2 is a good example of, of the struggle that Martin Luther had. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, as the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. Yet James uh, says in 2.24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So you compare those two and first impressions are that there's a contradiction, right? You'd be wrong. <laughs> there's no contradiction and that's our task today to reveal that and convince you that that's true, Okay. So, uh, Martin Luther was against putting it, but the, but the reformers in total uh, disagreed, and it stayed in the New Testament. Uh, and so, as we, as we just read in 1543, in protest against that, he made that comment that, you know, it's impossible to prove to me that they 
can coincide and not be contradictory, okay? So uh, what, what's the deal with that? Well, Paul was concerned with the acquisition. Their, their, their writings to the churches were concerning two different things. Paul was concerned with the acquisition of saving faith, while James was concerned with the demonstration of saving faith. Paul was saying, this is how you get it. And James was saying, this is what you do with it. Okay? Uh, and so it has to do with the purpose uh, of their writing, the occasion, the purpose, the theme of what they were writing to different audiences for different reasons. Okay? Uh, James, of course, is writing to Jews who already profess to believe in Christ. And he's saying, if you uh, truly are a Christian, then there will have been a change in your lifestyle and there will be uh, resulting works as well. Uh, but Paul was writing to Gentile churches who were brand new to this, and I think many of them were just now coming to Christ, and he wanted to make sure that they knew the exact means in which to do that. How do you become a Christian was the gist of what Paul was writing, okay? So uh, what, what is the, why is faith necessary? Why, why uh, do we say faith alone? Why do we always put that alone on there? And why is it really a necessity to have faith? What if you're just the best person in the world? And, of course, I get this argument. You've probably heard this too. People say, well, I know uh, some of the best people I know are not even Christians and don't even believe in God. And you can't make me believe they're not going to heaven, you know. Uh, so what's the necessity of faith from the Bible's viewpoint? Can we see that? Okay, the necessity of faith, just a few passages. It's all through the New Testament. But he says in Romans 14, 23, whatever is not, this is from God's viewpoint now, whatever is not from faith is sin. John 15, 5, Jesus is talking. He says, look, I am the vine. He uses the analogy of the vine and the branches. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And he had just been giving the teaching in John 14 and then again in 16 after, this is sandwiched between, the teaching of the coming of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was saying, if you believe in me, the Spirit of God will indwell you. And, and it will be like this analogy. It's like this, I'm a vine and you are the branches and you abide in me, you live in me. I'm a part of you. I dwell in you, see. And he who abides in me and I in him, he can bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. So apart from that relationship, that faith relationship, you can't do anything. So all the good works that, that humanitarians do is great with humanity. They'll give you all the attaboys that you want. They'll put your name on the building. They'll talk and say great things about you. But God is not impressed. Think about that. Why would God be impressed? We're talking about the creator of the universe. We're talking about the omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent God. And you think he's impressed with any works that you do? Get out of town. Get real. Wake up. And so God says, this is about a relationship with him. It's not about you. 
That's what people want to do. They want it to be man-centered. This is what I did. This is who I am. I've accomplished this. I've got this. I raised myself up on my bootstraps. I'm a self-made man. And go on and on and on. I've heard it a hundred times. And all I can say is God is not impressed. He's impressed with Jesus, his son, and what he has done and accomplished on the cross. And that's it. So in your relationship with him that comes through your faith and belief in him, you can do good works. Bear fruit, as he says right there. Uh, in Hebrews eleven six, the author says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Please look up in the dictionary what impossible means. You can't do it. It is impossible to please God without faith. And so it's all important. How important it is it? it you've got to have it, it to have this relationship, to be saved, to be forgiven, to go to heaven. You have to have the faith and the belief. And this is not something a lot of people say in the same way they say, I'm an American, therefore I'm a Christian. This is a Christian nation. So, yeah, my people, my parents raised me in the church and I go there. Yeah, well, sure, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. Well, that's intellectual assent. That's just saying I believe he's a historical figure and this is, you know, that's not a commitment. That's not a faithful commitment to him. You're not putting your life in his hands, so to speak. That's the kind of faith that the Bible requires. And so James is saying if you have that kind of faith, then it will result in works. It will result in works, naturally. Because when you believe in that way, you've committed to him, and the Spirit of God has indwelled you, you will be changed from the inside, become basically a different person, and for the first time you'll actually desire to do good works for the right reason, to serve him and not yourself or other people. So you see yourself uh, exactly when you serve, you see, you'll see yourself actually serving God as well as the people that you're helping also, okay? So faith is all important, and you must have it, but it's a strong faith. It's a, a big commitment. You're putting your life in God's hands when you do this. It's a real commitment, okay? So, uh, Paul and James are, are not opposed to each other, and they are talking about the same thing. A great example of positive faith or genuine faith, you know, if you're looking for an example and of, of one or the other, is uh, uh, John Wesley. If you study his, his life, he was a strong believer, and he rode 250,000 miles on a horse in his lifetime. And he preached the gospel three times a day till he was something like 85 years old. It's an incredible uh, life that he had. On the other hand, a negative example is in your Bible. In Acts chapter 8, there's a guy named uh, Simon the Magician. And he sees Paul and all of his disciples and uh, sees their faith and how people are drawn to it. And he sees the miracles that they do. And he comes and says, how much will it cost? I'll pay you X amount of dollars to give that to me. Right? And so here's a guy, instead of trying to believe in it and receive what God has given him, 
tries to buy it, tries to make it his and make it, again, about him and not about Christ. Uh, and so it's James and Paul, are, I, I believe, are saying the exact same thing, but they are addressing different audiences and they have different purposes and meaning of what they're talking about. And so uh, don't be confused. Um, James wrote his letter to call them out. So he's, he's calling the churches out, say, look, you're supposed, to be, you're supposed to be making a difference in the world. You're supposed to be representing Christ. And uh, there should be some fruit. And, of course, what does the New Testament use that analogy of fruit? What does it mean? Does it mean uh, good works? Does it mean a good attitude? Does it mean obedience to the word? And the answer is yes. All of those things. So when you see fruit up there like that, that's what he's talking about. You have a good attitude. Uh, and so like in Galatians 5, it says you have the attitude of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Right? And then in other passages, it talks about the good works you do being the fruit that you bear and, of course, the obedience as well, okay? Um, and so uh, we, uh, we found this uh, cartoon that kind of tells you about the problem that James is addressing. James writing to the church, professes Christ, and it's like this church here, the light church. And they have a billboard outside that says, uh, home of the 7.5% tithe. <laughs> you don't have to go all the way. Uh, and we have 15-minute sermons. Uh, <coughs> I like this one. We have only eight commandments, and you get to choose which ones they are. <laughs> Three spiritual laws. Uh, the millennium is only 800 years. See, that, that by definition is 1,000. Uh, and we're everything you wanted in a church and less. And so uh, that, that's what James is addressing, uh, these kind of churches with, with people who have no commitment at all, you know, uh, and they just want to make up their own rules and say that they're Christian, but there's really uh, nothing to it, all right? So as you look in, in your uh, Bible, uh, in chapter James chapter 2, verse 14, uh, James is going to talk about three different kinds of faith. He says that kind of faith, this kind of faith, but my kind of faith. So he's going to talk about three different kinds of faith, and I think it's very interesting. Uh, in verse 14, there is a dead faith, or a lifeless faith would be a better way to say it, that says a lot of good things. They speak, they know the lingo, but they do nothing. Nothing comes from it. It's just intellectual assent is all it is. In the same way that you would say, uh, well, I, I, I believe Abraham Lincoln, you know, was president 1860 to 64, right? That's just intellectual assent. You're not willing to base your life on it, you know. Uh, and, and so uh, the second kind of faith that he's going to address in verse 18 and 19 is demonic faith. And you go, what? And he says, look, the, even you say you believe in Christ? The demons believed in Christ. If you look at all the gospel stories, everywhere he went, Demons addressed him, we know who you are. You're the Son of God. And that's what he's talking about. So they believed in God, but the demons actually opposed Christ. So a demonic faith is one that believes in Christ, but actually opposes him. 
see. Uh, and then the third kind of faith that James discusses is that kind of faith you want. It's a dynamic faith uh, that is living and active and visible. A faith that results, I mean works result from, okay? So let's look at them. Go through them in, in verse 14. He says, what use is it, my brethren, so by, my brethren means my brothers in Christ. He's talking to professing Christians. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works, nothing comes from it? Can that kind of faith, your um, English translation probably says, can that faith save him? But the definite article is in there, so it means, literally, can that kind of faith save him? And that would be the first kind there that we looked at up there. Uh, that kind of faith that, that uh, really has no life in it is really dead, as he says, okay? Can that kind of faith, it's a rhetorical question, you're supposed to say, no, <laughs> right? That one, that kind can't. And uh, so he goes on. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? So again, the, the, he's, he's giving an illustration if somebody says something but does nothing. What good is it? It's not worth anything. The people remain hungry and cold, right? And if one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what uses that even so in the same way faith if it has no works is dead it's lifeless there's nothing to it being by itself and then the third kind of faith uh excuse me the second kind of faith but someone may well say you have faith and i have works show me your faith without the works i'll show you my faith by the works you believe that god is one you do well the demons also believe and they shudder. It, it scares them. They're against Christ. But are you, are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? It's not apparent. It's not life-giving. Nothing comes from it. It's just intellectual assent with nothing behind it. And so it is useless, right? So... Uh, dead faith is characterized by an empty confession, false compassion, and no commitment, as he says. Uh, and then the second kind of faith is saying that by your actions you actually oppose him. You're, you're probably thinking about, well, I don't know anybody with demonic faith. Not so fast. Anybody that actually uh, claims to believe or does believe in his existence is one, it, for instance, Someone at some of these real liberal churches that don't believe in, in all the truth that's in the Bible. Like they don't believe in the, the literal resurrection. They don't believe in the inspiration of Scripture. They don't believe uh, in any of the basics of the Bible. And that's probably about, to be honest from the polls I've looked at, that's about 50% of professing Christians have what, what he's talking about here. The kind of faith that actually opposes the real Jesus Christ. They make up their own Christ, their own version of it, you see. Uh, and so that's what he's talking about there. 
they actually oppose him by what they, uh, the, the differences that they believe in him. So uh, the third kind of faith is what we want to have. It's a dynamic faith. It's a living. It's active. It's visible. See? Um, Hebrews 11, you know, we had a passage up earlier, but if you want to really look at a whole chapter in the Bible that's a key passage on faith, Hebrews 11, and he first defines faith, uh, and then he gives a, a, story, a history and a story behind every biblical character that had faith. For instance, he said Noah, God told him that it was going to flood and that he had to build the ark, and Noah believed God. So, what did he do? Nothing. So, he built the ark, even though it took a hundred years, and everybody else in the world made fun of him and ridiculed him and didn't believe it, he built the ark. Now, no one would do that without faith. Why did he build that ark? There's only one reason, faith. It's the only reason. Abraham lived uh, in Ur, the Chaldeans down there by the, uh, what is that, down there by Iraq, you know, where it goes into the sea, Arabian Sea. Well, he had a great home and a family and stuff. He was an important guy. God said, pick up, leave it, and go to the land I'm going to show you, the land of Canaan. So he just picked up and left. Why? Because he believed. That was, you know, Obvious, no one would do that, leave their home and their business and their possessions and their family unless they totally believed it. And so he went through every one of those characters and talked about, you know, they believed this, they had faith in this, so that, and then the things that they did because as a result of their faith. And so it's very biblical <coughs> what James is saying here. All right? Now in chapter... Uh, James chapter 2, verse 21, he's going to go and talk about biblical examples of what he's talking about here. All the characters in the Bible, uh, as, as I just said, are really great examples of what he's talking about here. So he's going to bring up two, two prime examples that he's going to use to prove his point. Uh, and the first one is Abraham. So Abraham, he says, verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Uh, and when did that happen? That happened in Genesis 22. So he is uh, talking about the story where God said to Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, out and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. So he journeyed and he, you know, when he says sacrifice, that literally, that, that, that's what it means. And so he took his knife and he took the wood for the fire and the altar and everything and he went to Mount Moriah and built it and tied up his son and was getting ready to sacrifice him when, of course, God stopped him. And the whole thing was just a test of his faith. If you really believe in me, and you put me first, would you even give up your own son? And that's how strong his belief was. That's a commitment, isn't it? Can you even imagine that kind of commitment? So it's a perfect example of what he's saying. Why would Abraham do that? Because he believed in God to that extent. 
And that's his point. So we knew that Abraham fully believed in God because of what he did. And that's what James is talking about. That's what he's talking about. But don't miss this. When was Abraham actually saved? Genesis 15. Eight chapters before. Right? Many years before, the text says, uh, Jesus, I mean, God gave him some instructions and told him what was going to happen. And the text says, Abraham completely believed it. And because he believed what God said, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It was reckoned to him. In other words, God said, I'm giving you my righteousness because you believe in me. And so it was in Genesis 15 that he believed and God declared him righteous. And it was in Genesis 22 that he did this great work that proved his belief. And who did it prove it to? God already knew he believed. Who did it prove it to? To us and to himself and to his family. See? And so God knows your heart. He knows when you actually believe. But the human race and even yourself uh, doesn't know for sure until there's a change in your life and works result from it. You follow me? I hope so. You see, I want to see some of this. <laughs> Blank stares don't help me. Uh, yeah, so... Uh, in that sense, it sounds like that he's saying Abraham um, was justified by works. But that's what he's talking about is he's justified before men. He's justified before himself. He goes, how strong is my faith? I was willing to sacrifice my son. You want to know if I put God first on my list of priorities? I was willing, you know. So he knows in his heart now. And all the people in his family, he talked about a good witness right? It's like Jesus said, uh, he expects the church, he expects believers to be like a light that shines on a hill that draws people to it. And so James is talking about that kind of faith that produces works that draws people to Christ. It is a proof of your faith to the human race and of course to yourself. But God knows your heart from the very beginning. So he knew Abraham was saved in Genesis 15, many years before. And then it was proven before men in Genesis 22. And that's what he's talking about here. He wants the church to be a light, a beacon to the world. And he's saying, if you really do believe, you'll be out there doing things and having that life-changing experience that is a great witness to the world around you, okay? So, verse 22, he says, You see that faith was working with his works. You see that? He is uh, saying there's a, a relationship between faith and works. They're related. You have the faith and you believe in Christ, and that results in the good works, right? Uh, John Calvin said, uh, you're saved by faith, and the result is works. It's a, not a faith that doesn't have works. It's a faith that does have works. 
John Calvin said that. So faith that works is the relationship that he's talking about here in verse 22. You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected, revealed, mature, would be other ways of uh, translating that Greek word. So when Abraham did that work, all the people around him recognized that strong belief that he had. So he was, at that time, mature, perfected, as it says here, in that sense. All right? And, verse 23, the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So it, the works fulfilled what he had already uh, believed back seven or eight chapters before, is what James is saying. Scripture was fulfilled. So the scripture way back, you know, 25 or so years before said, I guess it would have been about maybe 40 years before, uh, said that God reckoned it to him as righteousness. And when he did this in Genesis 22, it proved that up. It proved that up is what he's saying. So Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. And scripture was fulfilled at that time. It was proven in other words. So you see, he says in verse 24, that a man is justified by works in that sense. And not by faith alone. They go together. There's, there's a relationship is what he's saying. But which comes first? Let me see. Does Genesis 15 come first or Genesis 22? Oh, yeah, Genesis 15. So faith comes first. And as Jesus said, those passages we read earlier, without faith, there's no works in God's view. You've got to have faith to do the works. So the most important thing is the faith, the belief, the commitment. And then that kind of faith, though, will have a changed life and will result in good works. Okay? Oh, he's got another example here. This is my favorite one. Verse 25. And in the same way, another example in other words, uh, and in the same way was not Rahab the harlot? Do we have a picture of Rahab? There she is. <laughs> now, amazing, she's mentioned many times through Scripture. She's mentioned in the New Testament. She's actually in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew 1. How about that? But in every place she's mentioned, she's called Rahab the harlot. And if you remember the story, uh, the Jews sent in some spies to scout out the land. And uh, we see that by the providence of God, or just coincidence, they hide out. They go into the first place that looks like they may be able to hide. And it happens to be a cat house. Yes, I said it. A house of ill repute run by the madam, which is none other than Rahab the harlot. It was her house. And everywhere she's referred to as the harlot. In any world, in any way, can anybody say, I believe Rahab the harlot was, was uh, I believe she was saved by works. No, you can't say that. 
I believe this prostitute was saved by her good works. Think of all the men that... No, she was not saved by good works. She was saved by faith. But because of her commitment, the text in the story in Joshua 2 says that she believed, she heard all the stories about the God of Israel, and she believed in him. And so when these spies came, she said, okay, you're the Jews. I want to become a Jew. I believe in the God of Israel. And she proved her commitment, her belief in the God of Israel by taking care of these two spies, protecting them, hiding them, and saving them. Okay? And so she ends up uh, becoming a proselyte afterwards and marrying into uh, the, the Jewish group and is actually in the genealogy of Christ. And so Rahab's a great example, and I don't think anybody could ever say, as I said, that Rahab was saved by works. That, that would be ridiculous. But her faith was proved when she did these good works and saved these men. Abraham, by the way, uh, you could say the same thing about Abraham before uh, because a lot of people make him out to be a saint not a chance. You go back to Genesis 12, he traded his wife for a herd of goats. <laughs> go read the story. Pharaoh came and said, is this your wife? No, it's my sister, you want her? And the dowry was all these herds of goats and camels and sheep and everything, and he left Egypt a very rich man, you know. Abraham wasn't saved by works, saved by faith. But in Genesis 22, he proved his faith. Exactly. Okay? Uh, and so, uh, this uh, James by faith, I mean, excuse me, James versus Paul, uh, saved by works or by faith, it has no water. There's no such thing. James and Paul perfectly agreed on the means of salvation being by grace and the reception of it by faith alone. They totally agreed, and you say, how do you know? You weren't there? Well, actually, I kind of was because we have Acts 15. And in Acts 15, this very issue is disputed, and they called a church council very early on in the 40s you know, maybe 10 to 15 years after Jesus, when the church was really coming together and being formed, this issue came up. Because when the Gentiles were coming to Christ in Antioch, a bunch of the Jews going up there, and they had such a, a history and such baggage of doing works, you know, being circumcised and eating kosher and obeying the law, that they tried to get the Gentiles to do that too. Paul and Barnabas being up there said, we got to settle this right off the bat for once and for all. And so they called all the leaders of the church to Jerusalem. They all came. They were all there. And you can see it in Acts 15. And Peter and uh, Paul and Barnabas and James, this James, he was the head of the church. He was the moderator. He was the head of the church council and made the final decision. 
okay? So uh, this is Peter's speech, I think. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, to this, all the church leaders, Brethren, you know that in, my, in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And, of course, this is without any works at all. And he made no distinction between us who were circumcised and ate kosher and did all, you know, obeyed the law. He made no distinction between us. Cleansing their hearts, how? By faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of these disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? What does he mean by that? Why do you put God to the test by? He's saying, you know, in the old days, the, do you read the Old Testament? All through the Old Testament, they couldn't hack it. They couldn't keep the law. It was too big a burden. They failed miserably. And so Peter's saying, do you want to do that to this group too? You want to take the Gentiles and put that same burden, you know, the image of a big yoke around their necks? No, <coughs> but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. And then James spoke last, and he agreed with everything that Paul and Peter had said. And he changed, he says, that only he changed it from uh, an issue of the means of salvation to just because it bothers the, you know, uh, really bothers the Jewish Christians, please abstain, not a command, uh, a request, please abstain from pagan customs of sacrificing meat to idols and all this other garbage that they did back in those days. But the means of salvation was settled at this church council in Acts 15. And in my mind's eye, at least, I see, I have a vision of Paul and James walking out arm in arm saying, you're the greatest. No, you're the greatest. See, they agreed completely. There's no argument between Paul and James. They're just talking about two different things. Exactly. And uh, at this council, it was settled, and we can look at it, and we can know for sure that the issue is solved from the very beginning in the church that the, the means of salvation is by grace. The reception of salvation comes by faith alone. And works come as a result of that afterwards. All right? Um, I saw a, uh, I think I have it here, a, a prayer uh, by somebody um, talking about how talking about that light church and how some churches have no works at all, you know. And uh, this is actually a eulogy. Uh, he says, "I know that all of you were saddened to learn this week of the death of one of our church's most valuable members, someone else. 
Someone's passing created a vacancy that will be difficult to fill. Elsa's been with us for many years, and for every one of those years, someone did far more than the normal person's share of the work. Whenever leadership was mentioned, this wonderful person was looked to for inspiration as well as results. Whenever there was a job to do, a class to teach, a meeting to attend, one name was on everyone's lip. Let someone else do it. It was common knowledge that someone else was among the largest givers in the church. Whenever there was a financial need, everyone just assumed that someone else would make up the difference. Someone else was a wonderful person, sometimes appearing superhuman, but a person can only do so much with the truth known everyone expected too much of someone else. Now someone else is gone. We wonder what we're going to do. Someone else left a wonderful example to follow, but who's going to follow it? Who's going to do the things someone else did? Remember, we can't depend on someone else any longer. And that's what James is saying. You believe you're a Christian, be doers of the word and not just sayers. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with your word from James. And I pray, Lord, that uh, we would take it to heart and be convicted that because we're Christians and because we believe so strongly and so committed that it's just going to be a natural thing for works, uh, for good attitude and works and fruit to come forward out of us. Uh, and we pray, Lord, you convict us of that, move us to do it, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Do I get a beret? Yeah. <laughs>